From the beginning of Mark's Gospel, he's challenged us time and time again with this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Make up your mind, Mark asks us. I'll present you evidence, even evidence from the opposition. But at the end of the day, you must make up your mind about who Jesus is and then live accordingly. Now today this question comes into sharp focus and of all places it happens in a royal court. And this focus on who is Jesus sees John the Baptist lose his life while pointing to the fate of the Messiah, the Son of God. So before we go further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this grim story of John the Baptist, we pray that you will help us to see how he is pointing to Jesus. Open our hearts and minds to see Christ afresh. Have your way with us. Mould us to be more like him. In his name we pray. Amen. Now you may remember from a week or so ago that this story of John the Baptist is sandwiched between the sending out and the return of the disciples. Mark wants us to see these two accounts, these two stories together. Now last time we looked at the connection. This time we're going to mainly focus on the death of John the Baptist, the filling of the sandwich, so to speak. And it begins in Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. So what had King Herod heard about Jesus? Well, reports no doubt were reaching the palace about a wandering rabbi who was amazing large crowds with his teaching and his miracles. So the court, the royal court, was abuzz with gossip, rumour and speculation, all of which reached the king's ears. And we can imagine a disturbed Herod consulting his trusted advisers. And so to the question, who is Jesus, there were two views circulating among the palace. The first we read in verse 14, second half. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and this is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now this is a bit of a surprise for us. John the Baptist being raised from the dead. The last we heard was in chapter 1 when John the Baptist had been put in prison and it was only then that Jesus started his ministry. But here it sounds like he's dead. Anyway, while alive people had huge expectations on John. They even thought he was the Messiah despite his his denials. So the thought of John being raised from the dead and producing all these miracles was a real thrill to many people. And that's what they hoped it would be. John the Baptist, raised from the dead, doing miracles. That's who Jesus was. That's the first view. The second one is in verse 15. Others said, he is Elijah. Now this is based on the Old Testament prophecy that Elijah would return before the Messiah. So when Elijah appears, then the Messiah will follow closely. Now Elijah was a prophet well known for calling people, especially kings, to repent. But he was also a prophet associated with all kinds of miracles. And again, this was another exciting possibility for the crowds. Not only would there be more miracles to wander over, but the Messiah was at hand ready to sort out all of Israel's woes. So to who is Jesus? Many were saying, well, he's Elijah. But there's a third view doing the palace rounds. And others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. 
Now, there were a number of famous prophets from long ago, all of them recorded in the Old Testament, but only three were associated with miracles. There was Elijah, who we've mentioned, and the other prophet, Elijah, and also Moses, the greatest of all prophets. These three prophets were associated with miracles. So people were saying, well, we don't know about this Messiah thing, but certainly Jesus is like Elijah and Elisha. In fact, he could be another Moses. So when it comes to answering the question, who is Jesus, here it has three options. Jesus could be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Jesus could be another Elijah. Or maybe he's another prophet like days of old. So which view will King Herod go for? He's got three to choose. Verse 16. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. This is a bit of a shock, really, isn't it? Imagine if you were reading Mark for the first time. And we go from John being imprisoned in chapter 1 to verse 16, where it sounds like he's dead, to now we're hearing the gory detail. How and why would Herod do such a thing? Why would he chop off a man's head? And that's exactly what Mark answers in the next few paragraphs. Now, in some respects, this is a bit of a timeout from the story of Jesus. It's a bit of a side alley. It doesn't advance or further Jesus' ministry directly. But indirectly, this story has serious implications for Jesus. And so, a bit about John. John's death had much more significance in Jesus' day than we realise. We, with 2,000-year gap between John's ministry and ourselves, underestimate how important John the Baptist was in Bible times. He was more well-known... He was more well regarded than Jesus before he died and even a long time after he died. Let me briefly show you how important John was. Some 20 years after he died, we read of Apollos arriving in the city of Corinth. Paul had just church planted and moved on. In Acts 18.25, we read this about Apollos. Apollos taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. Here, some 20 years after John's death, here is Apollos, a disciple of John, going around preaching about John, but also about Jesus. Now, the husband and wife team that Paul had left in Corinth wasted no time. We read in verse 26 of Acts 18. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him into their home and explain to him the way of God more adequately. And so Apollos, the disciple of John, now becomes Apollos, the disciple of Jesus. And in a few verses later, something very similar. In the beginning of Acts 19, Paul arrives in Ephesus to plant a church, and he finds 12 disciples. But it turns out they're disciples of John, not of Jesus. So in Acts 19, verse 4, Paul said to these disciples, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. Twenty years later, there are still at least 12 disciples in the far-flung city of Ephesus that are following John's teaching. But by the grace of God, they become disciples of Jesus. It's a long time after John's death. And 40 years after John's death, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote his history of the Jews for the Romans. He wasn't a Christian. This was like a secular history. In it, 
Josephus gives a full account, a few paragraphs to John the Baptist. Jesus only gets a couple of sentences almost as a footnote. Forty years after his death, John was held in higher regard amongst the Jews and the wider empire than Jesus. He deserved the words that Jesus himself said in Luke 7, 28. And Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of woman, there is no one greater than John. And this background about John is all by way of helping us to understand how incredibly tragic the events are that are about to unfold. John was a great man, both in God's eyes, but also really in the world's eyes. And all due to the folly and the pride of a king, an innocent man is put to death. So let's see how events unfold. Verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him brought and put into prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to do so because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and a holy man. Now a word about Herod. I've given you a bit of introduction about John. What about Herod? Well, when you're reading the New Testament, there are three different King Herods and it's easy to get a bit muddled. So I'll spend just a moment helping us untie or untangle these three Herods. Now the first Herod we see in the New Testament is Herod the Great. And he was king when Jesus was born. And he's famous in the New Testament, unfortunately, for killing all of the babies around Bethlehem. You remember the story? The wise men come and tell King Herod the Great that the Messiah is born, but they, they don't go back and tell Herod who it is. And so Herod, just to make sure that there's not a, another future king, kills as many babies as he can in the surrounding area. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. So that's King Herod the Great. Now he had a son called Herod Antipas. Herod, and this is the Herod that we're talking about today. He was the one that imprisoned and killed John the Baptist. There's also another generation of Herods, Herod Agrippa. He was the one who imprisoned and killed John the Apostle. So you've got James and John, you know, Peter and Andrew. Well, that John, you'll read in Acts, was imprisoned by this king, Agrippa, and was killed. Do you notice a little bit of pattern between those Herods? Three generations of Herod, three generations of murderers. Yeah, not a good reputation to have at all. So it's King Herod Antipas, just Herod in our context, that we're looking at this morning. And Herod had done a bad thing, (laughs) another bad thing. He had married his sister-in-law, Herodias. Now, if Herodias was a widow, if her husband Philip had died, then in the Old Testament, it was a good thing to marry your widowed sister-in-law, kinsman redeemer. And in those days, it was often because a widow was very vulnerable and needed the protection and the financial support of family. And so the nearest relative would marry the widowed sister-in-law and take in the children and carry on the the family name. But that's not what's happening here at all. Philip is still alive. And so to marry your sister-in-law while your brother's still alive is adultery. And not only that, 
because Herod the Great had a few wives and concubines, it so happens that Herodias was also Herod's niece. And so Elijah was saying, you cannot have Herodias as your wife because that's committing adultery and incest. And you couldn't keep John quiet in front of the crowds, even in front of King King Herod. He was saying, you can't do it. You can't have Herodias as your wife. And she was livid. She was spitting tacks. She wanted him killed. She plotted his death. But John is saved from a most unlikely source. He is saved by King Herod. Many Bible teachers believe that John was put into prison for his own protection. Certainly here in verse 20, it makes it clear that Herod is keeping John in prison from his own protection. The reason why John's in prison, at least, is to keep him safe from Herodias. It's his only safe place. Not that that stopped John. John just kept on. You need to repent. Verse 20. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So, from time to time... Herod would call up John from the prison and have him in the royal court and John would speak to him and he would let rip. (laughs) He would would let rip. And it reminds me of a quote from John Wesley. From John Wesley. And he writes this. I set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. I burn with passion, enthusiasm, dire devotion towards God and a holy hatred of the world and every form of lukewarm religion. Isn't that an awesome quote from John Wesley? But doesn't that describe John the Baptist? Down to a T. John the Baptist, I set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. And I think that's why Herod loved to hear John speak. Herod saw in John a man of conviction, a man of integrity, a man of clarity. John was probably the only man in the royal court who had no vested interest nor any fear of the king. So John spoke openly and honestly. John spoke God's word in a way that was clear, compelling and challenging. And while this puzzled the king, the king could not get enough. Until until a very unusual birthday party. Verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. So the setting is a birthday party in the royal court. It's the elite event for the social who's who. The movers and the shakers of the political and military world are there. What people wouldn't do for an invitation. eh? That was the party to be seen at. The party of the year. Hmm. And the wine flows freely and Herod's stepdaughter, who happens to be his niece and his niece's daughter, and it gets really complicated. You need to be a genealogist to work out how all this works. But anyway, his stepdaughter dances and the party is brought to a standstill. Everyone is transfixed. And Herod is basking in the adulation of his guests. So to further impress and in front of the people, Herod offers Salome anything, anything up to half his kingdom. And so his his stepdaughter consults her mother 
the wicked queen. And Salome returns with these words. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately sent an executor with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. I'm kind of pleased the children aren't here, really. Maybe one or two. It's a bit grim, isn't it? It's just awful. Maybe you've held a birthday party that didn't end well. Maybe you had some little eight-year-olds and... One of them had a little wee sick in the corner and there was a bit of a falling out and it just was all tears. And you, afterwards you said, I am never going to hold a birthday party for eight-year-old girls in my life again. And then what happens is next year you do it for nine-year-old girls. Yeah, well, maybe we know parties that don't end well, but oh, goodness me, I don't think anyone of us has been to a party that ends this badly. And I wonder what happened when the guests saw the head on a platter whether the music just started up again, or whether people started to quietly slip out, thinking, oh, I think that king is angry. (laughs) Maybe it's best we just slip away. Goodness me. A sad ending to a great man's life. Verse 29. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. In Matthew's account of this story, we read that the John's disciples also went and told Jesus... So how are we to make sense of this rather gruesome story? What's our sort of take-home, our application? Well, to match the grimness of the story, our two take-homes are warnings. Warnings. First warning we get from this passage is that it is possible to sit under the best of teaching from God's word and for it to do absolutely no good. Just because we are keenly interested, intrigued, even fascinated by good teaching... If it doesn't have any impact on our lives, it is a complete waste. Look at Herod. He was just fascinated with John. And there are people today that love to hear a good sermon and watch it on TV or they've got a preacher that they just love to hear or podcasts and they're fascinated. But it doesn't do them any good because they don't put it into practice. And John, you could never say that John's sermons were boring You could never sleep through John's sermon. Time for a confession. A couple of weeks ago at the nine o'clock service, one of the folk came up to me and said, I'm sorry, Douglas, I fell asleep during your sermon. Wasn't that lovely? My turn to confess because I said, no problem. And you know what went through my mind? I hope you didn't sleep through the offering. (laughs) See, confession is very good for your soul. That's true, it did. I have repented. You may sleep through my sermons, but you would never sleep through John the Baptist's sermons. He was that compelling and clear and challenging. And yet it did no good at all for Herod. And I was reminded of the Sermon on the Mount, the most amazing of sermons. And do you know how Jesus ended that sermon? He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you do not put my words into practice? And then Matthew 7.36, he finishes with this very well-known parable. You know the parable. This is how he finishes his Sermon on the Mount. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice 
is like a foolish man who built his house on the death, on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. We know that story really well, don't we? The wise man built his house upon the rock. Yeah, we know the song too. It's a great song. But this is what we see here. As we see a foolish man who is building his house on the sand, who listens to the word of God and does not put it into practice. That's a real challenge for all of us. It's a challenge especially for preachers because one of the professional dangers we have is that we can preach every week from a sort of a technical, professional point of view, but sometimes we don't make any effort as preachers to put it into action, if you know what I mean. And so this stuff is edgy for me. Most of the time I'm preaching sermons to myself because this is where my growing curve is. But for all of us, preachers included, there's this challenge to not listen to good teaching or preaching, not to read the word of God and be thrilled and then not to put it into practice. So that's the first take home. Second take home is all about keeping our word. Keeping our word. Got a couple of questions. Is it right to always keep our word? I'll ask it again. In a slightly different way, is there, any a time, is there any time when we should break our word? Now think of Herod. It's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? See, he had given his word of anything up to half a kingdom and then his stepdaughter comes and says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Do you know he did not have to keep his word then, did he? He didn't have to. He could have said, look, I didn't, I had, in my wildest imagination, I didn't think that you would ask for John the Baptist's head. I will not keep my word when it comes to killing an innocent man. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I mean, he had, he, he, he had a choice, didn't he? Now, God expects us to be true to our word, even if it costs, unless our promise contradicts God's word. So, if we commit to a business deal by a handshake or signing of a contract and then later realise it was a mistake, we still honour our word. Now, we may try and renegotiate and, and have that conversation with the other party, but at the end of the day, we keep our word even if it costs. However, if we say to our 13-year-old son, they can go to the movie with friends, but we later find out that it's an R16... What do you do? And when we put our foot down and say, sorry, son, you can't go, and he turns around and says, but you promised. Eh? Well, what do you do? You can do something like this. I'm sorry, son. I did not know it was an R16. I'll do my homework better next time. But no, you can't go. And goodness me, it takes wisdom to know the difference, doesn't it? Goodness me, because as soon as it costs us, we try and wiggle out of it. <laughs> but if it costs us, that's not, the, that's not the criteria for breaking your word. The only criteria, or the criteria, the only time you break your word is if it's in contradiction to God and his ways. And we need the wisdom of Solomon to know the difference. But don't be like King Herod, who out of pride, out of not wanting to lose face, kept a promise he never should have. So those are our two take-homes today. Put God's word into practice. Keep our word, keeping our promises, except when that contradicts.
God and his ways. And there's a bigger implication as well as we come to communion. As I mentioned earlier, this account of John's death is a breakaway from the story of Jesus. It doesn't directly concern Jesus. It doesn't further the story of him and his ministry. And Mark goes into great detail here, more detail than he does in most other stories. Why? Because this story points to the death of Christ. John's death casts a deep shadow over the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus' death at the hands of King Herod points to Jesus' death at the hands of Pilate. Remember, Herod did not want to kill John. Pilate, he didn't want to kill Jesus either. Because both those rulers saw that John and Jesus were innocent. And this and a whole lot of other ways, John's death points to the death of Jesus. And though next week we move past the rejection in his hometown and the death of John to the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, you know, we move from the low point of this gospel and we start going back up to the high point. Even though we go on to those wonderful miracles, the shadow of the death of John lingers with Jesus all the way to Jerusalem and ultimately the cross. The cross where Jesus' rejection and grim death becomes our open door to abundant life and full acceptance. Because Jesus was rejected on the cross, we are accepted. Because Jesus the innocent was killed, we who are far from innocent are forgiven. Because Jesus' life was taken away on the cross, we who were dead now have everlasting life. And John's death foreshadows this. So as we come to communion, where we taste the death of Jesus and the bread and the cup, let us not come with heavy hearts. Yes, John's death has been awful. But here is the good news. John the Baptist called Herod to repent and he wouldn't. But Jesus has called you and I to repent and we have. We have obeyed. We have repented. And maybe some of you here today, maybe there's something that you need to put right with God. As I've been speaking, there's something that's not right in your life and you know and, it's, and you're conscious the Holy Spirit is prodding you. As you take the bread and as you take the cup, allow this be a time for you to repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm committed to putting this right. So come with a spring in your step because even though the death of Christ is tragic at one level, It is a glorious victory that brings us life. Come to the table of Christ. Taste and see that he is good. Drink in his great love, for you are a child of the Most High God, deeply loved and cared for. So let's pray.